We know God's plan and God's timing does not always line up with our plans and our own timing. The way we would have things done isn't always the way that God decides to have things done. But what we know through studying the Bible and also through our testimonies and own experiences that we've had in our own lives, I think most of us could affirm that God's plan and God's timing is always better than our own plans and our own timing. Last week, in wrapping up the sermon in conclusion, I asked you to go and to study the last part of Nehemiah chapter 1, looking at the prayer that Nehemiah had upon hearing the news of his fallen city. Mainly, I asked you to look at a couple of things, how Nehemiah pauses to glorify God in the midst of bad news, how he then humbles himself, and then how he makes requests and intercessions for those around him, even in the form of a confession. And lastly, how Nehemiah submits himself to what God is doing and what God's purposes are. I'm sure everyone here this morning went and did that, with the exception of maybe one or two. And of course, those figures might be reversed. What I can say is it's not too late. While I'm going through this introduction, if you want to go glance at the last couple of verses in Nehemiah chapter 1, be a great time to do that. Just listen passively to how I want to get us started this morning. What I can say is that if you went through that, that process of looking at Nehemiah's submission, it will benefit you this morning as we continue to dive in to the next part of Nehemiah's story and the next part of God's plan in using Nehemiah. Now, prayer is kind of a hinge point to this entire story. The way that everything's held together and starts to play out in the book of Nehemiah, prayer is constantly revisited and refocused upon, and we see how essential it is to pursuing plans and doing things in in the way that God would have us to do them. I might also mention that prayer is one of the core values that as a church we decided we would uh, enumerate. In fact, if you look at our core values available on our website or published out in the foyer, um, prayer, our core values reads, because God desires to hear from his children, we believe in the importance and effectiveness of prayer, seeking to align ourselves with his will. I want to undergird some of the important parts of that statement. First, God wants to hear from his people. The entire purpose of salvation is that we might have a relationship with God. His entire purpose in salvation is that He is able to have a relationship with us. He wants us to pray. He wants us to speak to Him. He wants us to spend time in communion with Him in this way. And so we say prayer is important. We don't stop there, though. We also say prayer is effective, which means that when we ask for things, God is willing to give them to us. Now, hold on. 
I started this morning by saying that sometimes our will, our plans, our timing is not always God's will, God's plans, or God's timing. What do we mean then that prayer is effective? Well, first I want to say that I do mean God does want to answer our prayers. And He answers them with plans that are bigger and better than our own. The most important part of prayer is that clarifying statement at the end of our core values. Prayer is us aligning our will with God's will. It is submitting ourselves to an all-knowing, all-powerful creator so that our will is no longer shaped by this world, shaped by our own flawed passions, shaped by our own motivations, but instead it is in agreement with what God would want. That means that when God chooses to, instead of say no, when God chooses to say wait, we are okay waiting. That means when God chooses to say no, we are okay to move forward where He would lead us. When God calls us away from a place of comfort to a place of persecution, we're willing to go because through prayer, our will becomes aligned with God's will. Prayer is not an incantation to make the God of heaven to do what we want Him to do. And neither is prayer futile because God's going to do in His sovereignty what He's already decided to do. When you think about something for a moment, the Bible, if you want to look at 1 Timothy 2, 1-5, says pretty clearly that God wants all people, everyone, to be saved. We know that's not the case, though. There is a conditional element to God's will. Even though He desires something, He, in His sovereignty, chooses to withhold it until we participate in it with Him. Prayer, then, is more than just aligning our will with God's, but it is also participating with God in His ministry. In the example of salvation, we know that it only comes whenever we go to God in repentance, even though He's already decided He wants everyone to be a part of that. And even though He's already made it possible for anyone to be a part of that. Prayer. Maybe the most neglected of Christian spiritual disciplines. It's important that we understand prayer clearly. And I think through looking at the example of Nehemiah, we see a model of prayer that should help us to grow in our lives. Well, let's back up and just recap what we looked at last week. Nehemiah, who is this guy? Seems kind of insignificant. We found out he's the cupbearer to the king. His brother came to visit from Jerusalem. And of course, this is after the Babylonian uh, captivity, after the Persian Empire conquered Babylon, and after uh, the emperor of Persia has agreed to send people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, not once, but twice already. And Jerusalem, the temple's been started to be built. People have started to worship, but they've fallen back into idolatry. Things aren't looking good in Jerusalem. The wall is still in crumbles. In fact, that's where we find Nehemiah at the beginning of chapter 1. His brother comes, 
And Nehemiah says, Brother, how are things looking? And the brother says, Nehemiah, not so good. The wall has crumbled down. The people, they should be ashamed. Their state is one of shame. We can't protect our livestock. We can't protect ourselves from foreign invaders. We're in a weak state, and it doesn't look like things are going to be changing. It breaks Nehemiah's heart, and he falls to fasting and praying, and he prays before God. Let's pray then before we pick up looking at our text this morning in Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll just be looking at the first eight verses. Let's pray that we might understand what God has presented before us. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be here this morning together, worshiping you as a corporate body, as a body of people who want to come before you and want to understand your will. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself known to us, that we would have discernment and uh, that we would be able to see the truths that are found in your law. God, I pray that as we come to you this morning, that you would help us to evaluate ourselves, that you would clear us of any presuppositions, any burdens that we bring with us this morning, that you would help us to set those aside for a time now, that we could focus on you and the truth that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to mine out the truth in your word. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 2 and read along with me as I read out loud from those first eight verses. The Bible says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king, now I had not been sad in the king's presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And when I had given him a time, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the, of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
I think already we see the power of a faithful prayer. If you're just following along in the book of Nehemiah, what's just happened, Nehemiah got bad news, prayed, and now an opportunity has presented itself that God is answering that prayer. I want to point out something, though. God doesn't always make quick turnarounds. It's not because He's not capable, but because His will is bigger. If we go back to the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1, we find that it was the month of Kislev that we first find Nehemiah receiving the news of uh, Jerusalem's disarray. Kislev, everyone knows what that is, right? When that is? I didn't either. I had to look it up in a book. So Kislev is the equivalent then. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. and we have The Gregorian calendar that we go by is a solar calendar, so it's a little bit different. But Kislev then is our winter. It's November, December, somewhere in there. Nisan, where we pick up in chapter 2, is March, April. So the time that's passed from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is at least four months, but I can't even guarantee that it's not longer than that. It might be a full year in four months. It might be two years in four months. I'm not sure. But we can assume that it's at least four months. Time has passed. And what's happened during this time? All we know is Nehemiah was praying, that he was fasting, that he was going before God's throne with his request in such a way that it was, I mean, it's, it's burdensome. We can see the burden that's been laid on his heart. There's consequences in his own life. He's weeping in chapter 1 over the news of Jerusalem. And, and so this time has passed. Nehemiah has been faithful in prayer, and we begin to see the effects of it. Now, I even would point out that in verse 4 of chapter 2, Nehemiah, whenever the king asks him about his displeasure or whatever uh, malice that he's seen on his face, Nehemiah pauses, and I said verse 4, I want to go forward a little bit further. Whenever the king asks what Nehemiah would have from him, Nehemiah pauses. And he prays to the God of heaven. This is, his life is covered by prayer. His decisions are covered by prayer. We see the example of four months at least of waiting, covered in prayer and fasting as the burden that God's given to him takes over his, his, his form of worship and his submission to God and his obedience. And then whenever he's given the opportunity to ask for what he would have, what his burden would motivate him to have, still he turns to God in prayer. And this is a different kind of prayer. This is an immediate, quick prayer. This is a reaching out to God. This is a fast, momentary prayer that is covered with four months of praying and fasting. I want to notice something really fast about the power of a faithful prayer. I want you to look at this picture and the interaction that Nehemiah is having with King Artaxerxes. Everyone should practice saying King Artaxerxes when you leave here because it is a fun one to say and it's an even harder one to read. 
But look at the interaction that Nehemiah has with the king Artaxerxes and the interaction that he has with the king of heaven. In the four months of prayer that have surpassed this, there's been an interaction as he goes to the king of heaven asking him to give him something specific. I want you to think about what's happened here with the interaction with the king or the emperor of Persia. There's power in a faithful prayer. But I want you to look at what a privilege it is. Notice that when the king says to Nehemiah that he notices something is wrong, Nehemiah's first response is one of fear. He is afraid in the king's presence. His response is actually kind of ingenious. Because he, he answers a question with a question. You know, typical approach of, of Jewish teachers. He answers a question with a question, but he did so in such a way that it's disarming. Because the king says, I have given you a place of prominence and of respect. You're the cupbearer to the king. And here you are. Something's wrong with you. You're not sick. What's wrong? I want you to realize the consequences here potentially would be execution. Nehemiah's fear is well-founded. And he responds, why shouldn't I be sad? My people. Now, I want, King Artaxerxes is, is, is not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He, he doesn't have a relationship with God. But he can appreciate the reverence that Nehemiah has for his ancestors. The land where my father's graves are is in disarray. It's a disarming response. Look again. Nehemiah has something that he wants to ask for, but he cannot ask for it until the king says, what would you request of me? This is in total contrast to how we are able to approach the throne of God. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we can enter... Well, let me just read it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Where Nehemiah, standing before the king, finds himself in fear... When we enter the throne room of God, we enter it with confidence. Another translation would read that we can enter it with boldness and fervor. Nehemiah has to wait to make his request known to the king until the king asks him what he would have of him. But when we enter the throne room of God to make our request, we do so with confidence. And without him even asking, with boldness, we make our request known. Rather than waiting, we can draw near to God. And rather than approaching him with fear, we can approach him with confidence. This is a stark contrast, something for us to hold on to, something for us to remember. 
We see that comparison, the contrast between the interaction with King Artaxerxes and the interaction with the God and the King of heaven and earth. But in it also, we see Nehemiah trusting the sovereignty of God. Already pointed out that it's been four months at least, if not more, since Nehemiah has been praying or found out that Jerusalem was in disarray. And in that time, we defined prayer as our will coming into alignment with God's will. Nehemiah's will then has begun to come in alignment with God's. In fact, what we actually find in the difference between verse chapter 1 and chapter 2 in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah's vision has begun to take shape. There is something bigger happening. If you notice, when Nehemiah makes this request known, he has the foresight to ask for things that he will need without doing any measurement, without doing any planning, without drawing schematics. He knows it's going to require some stuff. And because of this time that God has allowed to pass, there's a bigger picture present for Nehemiah to reach out and grab. Nehemiah's vision needed to take shape. You see, there's a problem, especially whenever we talk about restoral. And I might make application to this whenever we talk about the church seeking um, revival. When we seek communities to come to know God and wake up to their own spiritual deficits, that they would know that the God of heaven is the one that provides all things for them. Now, I think in America, at least, we have in the last century the glory days that we can look back to. The days when the church services all ran the way that we would expect them to. When there wasn't a debate over uh, what type of worship music is better than the other. Whether we should sing from a hymnal or not. What color the carpet should be. The glory days of the American church. The day of revival and evangelistic crusades. We think back to that, and I, I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there has to be some sort of longing for a day of cultural revival when we would wake up enough and we would see our neighbors and our friends come to know God in such a way that their lives were truly impacted. I think we long to see a day when the church is such an essential element to society that it's actually meeting the needs of people. When the church isn't just a building for Christians to come and remember that they're not alone and be cared for, but when it's actually an outpost to go out into the world and do things. If we're truly burdened by the state of God's kingdom and what we need to be doing, I think we all share in that same vision, but we need to be careful here because we see a difference in what Nehemiah's done in chapter 1 and what Nehemiah's doing in chapter 2. In chapter 1, he hears news of Jerusalem being fallen. And I believe that when we hear such news, such devastating statistics like that that I shared last week, our heart crumbles and we want to go back to when that wasn't the case. We want to move backwards. But notice in chapter 2, Nehemiah isn't trying to move back to the glory days. Instead, he's pushing onward to a future. In fact, 
I would even say that the request is not how to get back to things that were long ago. Instead, it is to build upon the past within the context of current circumstances to create the possibility of a future for Jerusalem. Another thing that's happening in these at least four months is King Artaxerxes is also being prepared. I imagine his heart, like that of Pharaoh's in Exodus, is being, well, I'm sorry, let's go. King Pharaoh's in Exodus was being hardened, but I imagine King Artaxerxes' heart in the past four months has been being softened to allow Nehemiah to go, to lose this faithful servant that has found favor in the king's eyes. Last but not least, we can be sure that the moment that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 2 is God's timing. Not Nehemiah's, not King Artaxerxes, not Ezra's. God's. The other thing that we might look at is that Nehemiah is taking time to work within the bounds of the authorities that are over him. If I'm honest, if this would have been me, there would have been some sort of indignation in my response to the king. Why are you sad? What do you mean, why am I sad? Of course I'm sad. Let me go. I want to go and rebuild this city. That's not Nehemiah's response. First, we see him disarm the king with a question, and when the king asks, because he's following the customs, because he's working within the bounds of the authorities that are over him, even while doing God's will, he is obedient. And he says, if your servant has found pleasure in your eyes, or favor in your eyes, then let me return to Judah, that I might rebuild this city. As people that belong to the kingdom of heaven, sometimes we find ourselves rallying against a war that we do not have a fight in. The Bible says that Christians belong to heaven and that we should view our residence here on earth as a temporary residence that is like that of an alien visitor. Another way to put that is every member of the church should have a green card to be here. The war that we are fighting is not one of policy, not one of position, but it is a war of spiritual eternity. And when we allow ourselves to get distracted by anything else, we are losing the war that we're actually here for. We are. I said that the church should be an outpost, and I want to stick with this illustration for a moment to somewhat paint a picture of the function of the church as it relates to God's people who 
need to have resident alien cards or green cards while they're here on earth. We do not belong to this world because this world belongs to the enemy. As a Christian, we belong to the kingdom of heaven and to the redeemed earth. The church is an outpost. It's like that of a military base on a foreign country or in a foreign country. It exists for the purpose of nourishing God's people who are on the front lines. That means this is a place where we care for one another, where we heal each other's wounds so that we can be prepared to go back out, so that we can be prepared to go back out and share our testimonies with people who need to hear it. There's a lot of stuff happening in the world. I shared last week a lot of statistics about what's happening in the church. And I really, if you, <clears throat> I'm tempted to pull them back up and read them again. If it doesn't burden your heart to think about the number of people that are turning away from God, even those that have been raised in church, something is wrong. Now, 86% of statistics are made up, and I'm citing this without looking at it, but realize it was something like 63% of uh, 20-year-olds who were raised in church their entire life, more than half of them, when they go away to college, are leaving church and are never coming back. If that doesn't tell you that the church is doing something wrong, I don't know how else to say it. If that doesn't tell you that there's a lack of discipleship in the church, I don't know how else to show you. And realize those statistics are global. They're much bigger than this church in specific, uh, than Denver Street specifically. But I think it's safe to say that that is a subsection of our community that is represented here too. If that doesn't burden your heart the same way that Nehemiah's heart is burdened when he finds out what's happened to Jerusalem, I don't, I don't know what else to say. This is heartbreaking. I pointed out last week some of the other statistics that I found online, and most of them were probably made up again. But remember, 60 plus percent of Americans think that abortion should be legal in all or most circumstances. As Christians, can we stop fighting this policy war that we are obviously losing and let's focus our attention on the one thing that will actually help people? Because the reason that people think the way that is against God's way is not because they're stupid, is not because they're ignorant, although that might be some of it. It's because they don't have God. It's because they're not regenerate. If we're here fighting a war, and I think the Bible gives us a clear picture of spiritual warfare taking place in our temporary residence on earth, why are we splitting our forces on multiple fronts? 
I, I don't mean to say that we should abandon ship on, on issues of social policy and the way things of influence that we do have, but what I do mean to say is that our attention should not be focused on changing people's minds with reason and logic when it is not an issue of reason or logic, it is an issue of regeneration. We should be focusing our attention on discipleship. We should be focusing our attention on loving God's people and living life the way the Bible tells us to live our life. Rather than going to people with angry war cries and raising our disagreements so that we can make sure that our precious opinions are heard, why don't we allow our opinions to go to the throne of God so that our will can find alignment and agreement with His will? What I'm presenting really is not that radical. What I'm asking is, what if God's people acted like God's people? Nehemiah submits to the authorities of the Persian Empire, and he submits to his master, in this case, King Artaxerxes, in a way that Christians are called to submit to the authorities that are here on earth. Stick with me for a second. I want you to think about what the early church did in Acts chapter 5 when the authorities that were on earth put them under persecution. Remember, Peter and the apostles are standing before the Sanhedrin here. Acts 5, 27 through 29 says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There is one exception to disobedience to authority, and that is when authority instructs us to contradict the word and the instruction of God. There's a couple of requirements here. The first one is you need to know what God requires of you. Otherwise, you're leading a revolution on grounds that are unbased. God does not promise us any privileges while we are alien residents. He promises us privileges when we are in our real home in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that after the apostles are flogged and jump down to verse 40 in Acts chapter 5, we find that when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. In Christ's name. There are no privileges for Christians on earth. Rather, we should rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. That is the example whenever the authorities contradict God's word. But the rest of the time, as long as there is no such contradiction, Romans 13, 1 and 2 tells us very plainly that every person should be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. 
Even though I don't agree with every person who has been granted a position of power or authority in government, in our world, in our different elected positions, in our communities, the Bible says that they are there because God put them there. Even if they do not agree with God, God is the one who has allowed them to be there. There's no argument there. Just like God allowed the Babylonians to conquer Judah. Just like before that, he allowed the Assyrians to conquer Israel. Just like before that, he allowed King Solomon to divide a nation. Just like before that, he raised up a shepherd named David to unite a nation. God is not losing any battle or any war. God is winning, always has been winning, and I've got the end of the book. He does win. There is no doubt about his sovereignty regardless of circumstances. There's no question. In fact, to say anything different would be to impose my own will on Scripture and to disobey and to shirk what the Bible clearly presents before us. Because it's not just Paul writing in Romans that gives us this presentation of God's sovereignty even in those who disobey God. It's also Peter in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 through 15 that we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When we stand opposed to authorities with no biblical basis, we jeopardize our own testimonies. We put ourselves in a position of weakness because we have already demonstrated an abandonment of our reverence for God's word. I can very easily imagine being in the position of Nehemiah, especially with current circumstances the way that they are. But what we find just in this short picture of Scripture is a reminder that God's sovereignty is in control regardless of the circumstances. And that God is answering the prayers and the supplications and the intercessions of His people with diligence. And even when those timelines don't match what I want them to be, God is still in the business of answering prayers because prayer is effective. 4 months pass by. How many of you have prayed for something for 4 months? I know there's several in this church that have been in this position. In fact, I know that there's several in this church that have... Um, I'm not trying to pick on anyone because there's many examples in my, in my head right now, but there are several in this church that have dealt with infertility and waited for long periods for God to answer a prayer to, to give them a child. How long has it been since there's been something you've been so burdened with 
that you have prayed for four months. And I said this might not be four months. This might be a year plus four months. It might be two years and four months. God's perspective is bigger than your finite perspective. Our lives are described in the Bible as a vapor. God has a bigger plan. And He's working that plan and He's using us to work that plan. Quit splitting our forces and let's be committed to doing things God's way. Let's be patient. Have enough foresight to see what lies ahead. I am amazed by Nehemiah's foresight whenever he says, By the way, king, and I don't know if it's because God told him to wait instead of no, but he says, By the way, king, whenever you send me, don't just send me, but give me letters that I can pass safely. And by the way, king, I don't have to get to Jerusalem to know I'm going to need wood to build the walls, and I'm going to need wood to build the fortresses around the temple, and I'm going to need wood to build the house that I'm going to live in. So God, also give me a letter that when I go and I see Asaph, the keeper of the king's wilderness, tell him to give me some wood because I want to need some of that. I don't know how much I need, but I know I'm going to need it. God, I, I know you're calling... Well, let me say it a different way. God, I know you've called every person that is a a member here, every person that's visiting here, every person who's impacted by this ministry. God, I know you've called every person here today here with a purpose. Because you don't do things by accident. Your plans are too great to be left up to chance. So God, you've called everyone here with a purpose. God, I know you're doing something here. God, you called us to Greenwood, Arkansas. Of all the places in the world we could be, this is where we're at. And you've done things in our lives. You've allowed us to meet spouses. You've allowed us to raise children. You've allowed us to make friends. You've allowed us to get to know each other. God, you've called everyone here with circumstances that are specific. And I know you have a plan. God, when I look at the church and the statistics, not just this church, but when I look at When I look at the communities around the world and the statistics that follow your people, God, my heart is broken. God, I'm privileged that you, you called me to be an American citizen, to, to live here on earth. You didn't place me somewhere else in the world. I think this is the greatest place. This is... And I, I didn't earn this. This was your choice. This is where you called me to be. And I'm so thankful for that. But God, I am disgusted by some of the policies that are being discussed and passed. God, my heart breaks. 
My heart breaks for a people who need you. And I realize I'm not anyone special. You called me to Greenwood, Arkansas. And I, I don't see any way for me to fix the world. That's your business, God. But allow me to serve you here. Maybe instead of trying to fix the entire house... I should just focus on my bedroom. Help me to fix my bedroom. Use me here that I can reach the people who need to hear you. God, I know from church history that revival, when it takes shape, takes off like a wildfire and crosses countries and states. God, I know you can use us. God, I pray. that you would use us in Greenwood, Arkansas.